Tonight, we're going to come across another difficult text. And I was thinking about it this week. If you've ever hung around like three or four-year-olds, you know, even five-year-olds, six-year-olds, they get their favorite movies and they love to watch their same movies over and over again, right? And so, uh, for instance, I was thinking about The Beauty and the Beast. Great movie. Great movie. And uh, the way a four-year-old watches Beauty and the Beast is not the same as the way an adult would watch Beauty and the Beast, right? Because what a four-year-old, you think of a four-year-old little girl, the way she'd watch Beauty and the Beast is this. She'd pick her favorite scenes, and she'd just watch those scenes over and over again. And probably her favorite scenes are probably when Belle is in the market dancing and singing and everything's so jolly and wonderful. She probably also would love the dinner scene when she gets to the castle and there's candlesticks, they're singing and dancing, there's teapots. It's a very exciting time, right? And so um, if you know any four-year-olds, they might fast forward. Dad, fast forward to this part. I'd like to watch this part again. And they'd probably like the end, the happy ending, right? When Rose and the beast, or Belle and the beast are, sorry Rose, (laughs) Bryce, you are not a beast. I mean, you're like a beast, but not like that kind of beast. Got you, okay. And um, happy ending, right? Dancing, singing, everything's wonderful. Now, there's parts of the story that they don't like, that they want to like skip through, right? Like they don't like Gaston, probably. I mean, he's funny to laugh at. But they probably don't also like when the beast yells at Belle, when he's very beasty, right? And they probably don't like when the villagers come with their pitchforks and their torches to kill the beast, right? They don't like it. They pick and choose which parts of the story that they like. And so they like rather to think of the beast as a beast to think of the beast as a big hairy dog or something like that. I love that big hairy dog and he's so nice and wonderful and I I love the giggling and the dancing and the singing, but I don't like those hard parts of the story. So I was thinking about that, and lots of times we do this exact same thing as a four-year-old girl. When we think about God's story and the gospel, we like the good parts. We like the singing and the dancing. We like the happy endings. We like the miracles. We like the dancing candlesticks. But here's the deal. Whether you're a four-year-old girl and it's Beauty and the Beast, or you're a 25-year-old man and you're reading God's story, if you leave out parts of the story, it's not the story that you love, it's something else. It's dancing candlesticks that you love, not Beauty and the Beast. It's happy endings that you love, not the Bible. And so, one of the things that uh, is so important to us here at Sedaris and the way that we preach and uh, talk about the Bible is that we can't leave anything out, right? We've got to preach the whole thing. And so, the reason that we've gone through Hebrews verse by verse and chapter by chapter is because we believe that our tendency as human beings is to leave out the hard stuff in favor of the good stuff. But if we do that, it's not the gospel that we love, it's something else. And I've said to myself again and again, don't do this job, don't preach this gospel, don't help God save people to something if it's not God's salvation, if it's not the true gospel. 
God forbid that anybody get saved to some other version of the gospel than the true, real gospel, because there's only one gospel, there's only one God, and He's the one that saves. And so, as we've gone through Hebrews, we've come up against some really exciting truths, and we've come up some, to some very difficult truths. Last week was a very difficult truth that God, as a loving Father, will discipline us, meaning He'll allow hardship to befall us in order to train us into people of endurance whose faith is not short but long, weak but strong. And again, this week we're coming to a hard truth. But we don't skip over it because it's all God's truth. It's all God's truth. So we preach it. So, we won't always go through books of the Bible. Sometimes we'll do topical sermons. There's nothing wrong with that. But, when we do go through a book, we want to go through it and read the whole thing and understand the full picture that God is trying to draw out. So tonight, again, we come to a difficult, but hopefully, a wonderful truth. A wonderful truth. So, as we come to this final climax in the book of Hebrews, we won't get to chapter 13. Chapter 13 is like all these sort of practical, uh, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. You can read that on your own. But the end of chapter 12 is really this climax that we come to where he explains everything that he's been building to and and explaining to us comes to this final one important truth that we have to understand if we're understanding the full gospel. And so we've known that and we've seen it. There's this overarching purpose of this letter, right? There's this church, probably a house church in Rome, And they're under intense persecution for their faith in Jesus Christ. And they're wondering, is it worth it? They're having this crisis, right? And the whole uh, overarching purpose is to give them motivation and encouragement and peace to continue on in the faith, to not give up on Jesus. And so... As we've seen, and, and, and you can think back and you can read back, and I, and I hope when you read back in Hebrews it, it comes alive because we have all this now uh, in-depth understanding of it. But what you'll see is that the way for a human being who believes in Jesus Christ, the way for them to endure the toughest of situations, the way for them to be good pilgrims on their way to the heavenly city of God, is, the author reminds to engage in several different activities that help us to endure. And they can be summarized in this way. He would say, uh, say, the best thing you can be doing is reading and rereading the scriptures, which are the holy communications of God. He'd say, it's good to learn and understand really good theology, like who is Jesus, Christology, what is sin, homardiology, why sacrifices matter, substitutionary atonement, all of this deep theology that sometimes we skim over. Hebrews teaches us that's very, very important for what? To endure when a crisis comes. He'd also say we must be people of prayer and petitioning to God through His Son, Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest. And we must be regularly in community for the mutual encouragement and accountability that that brings. And we must be studying the history of God's people and being motivated to do likewise. Now, you might, start, you might think back, did we really talk about all those things? We did. We did. 
And so we should be doing all those things regularly because we too live in a city that's opposed to the gospel. The persecution is different. We're not being put in jail for it yet. But we are still needing endurance. And so we should be reading our Bible regularly. We should be learning good theology. We should be praying constantly to God for direction and help in the name of Jesus, and we should be in community on Sundays. You should be in a fellowship group. You should study the saints of old. You should read biographies like Bonhoeffer and Jim Elliott and William Carey, John Edwards. You should read about the saints of old. So we should be doing all the things that the pastor in the book of Hebrews is telling his congregation to do. All of these things are helpful for the Christian to endure in times of crisis. However, He says one more thing in this final paragraph. In his final point, he tells us one more truth about God's plan, about his gospel, and it has a very different solution than the solutions he's given up to this point. So it's a different solution to the final problem. And it's a sobering reminder of our ultimate need and our, and our utter helplessness before the holy and perfect God. Excited yet? <laughs> Let's pray and ask God to kind of be, in us, uh, be with us as we study this text. Father, we thank you. We thank you for this uh, Pledge Sunday and the chance to come together in community. It's so important for our endurance that we're in community, that we're known, and we're knowing others, and we're encouraging one another, and we're studying your word, and we're praying to you in song and in private. We just pray that you'd illuminate this final problem and your final solution to it and help it to hit our ears that we might understand it Help us to know if we truly are ready for it. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever been in an earthquake? Raise your hand if you've ever been in an earthquake. Oh, wow. Okay. I was in an earth, uh, the earthquake that I really remember, I've been in a couple, but the one that really got me going, at 2001 I was a senior in high school. You do the math, figure out how old I am. And uh, I was doing this uh, kind of teacher's assistant thing at this elementary school that was next door to the high school. And uh, it was middle of the day, and I was walking down the hallway, and then all of a sudden, the walls started shaking like this. And then literally, I froze. I was right in the middle of the hallway. I froze like this. And there were teachers, like, all around in, like, the doorways, which is where you're supposed to run. And they're just yelling at me, run to the and I'm like, I'm just frozen there. And literally, I watched the ground sort of swell up and down. And I'm like, it's like I'm riding the waves, man. It was sweet. <laughs> and I was just like so frozen right there. And things were falling off the trophy cases and books were falling down. And teachers are yelling at me, get to the doorway. And I'm just right in the middle, you know. It was pretty fun. Okay. So, now how many of you grew up in Seattle? Okay. Now, for those of you who didn't grow up in Seattle, I don't know if they do this uh, anywhere else, but they would, they, would, uh, they would do these drills, right? They'd be like, in case of an earthquake, drop to the ground, get under your little desk, and just hold on to the, <laughs> <hold on laughs> to the legs of your desk, 
And, you know, we believed him. We thought that would help. And um, uh, what's funny is because, like, in Seattle, they've been predicting the big one for a long time, and they used to, like, terrify us with this. They're like, the big one is coming, right? And you probably have all heard of the San Andreas Fault, but there's actually a more dangerous fault that if it slips could cause the most catastrophic earthquake that this country's ever seen, and one of the biggest in the world, I guess, and it's known as the Cascadia Subduction Zone. You guys know about this? It's 700 miles long, and it, and it runs off the coast of the Pacific Northwest, like Northern California, Oregon, and Washington. And so they talk all the time, man, if that fault line slips, like big slip, not just a minor slip, if that like full-on slips, it's a big one. And this guy named Kenneth Murphy, he's the head of uh, FEMA for this division, responsible for Cascadia, uh, he said this, and I, this is a quote, our operating assumption is that everything west of Interstate 5 will be toast. <laughs> That's his professional <laughs> scientific opinion. Okay, so if you don't know, like, where we're sitting right now, like, we're like, what is it, like, four or five blocks from I-5, <laughs> and we're west of it, so we're toast. I mean, we're close. I mean, you can try to run if you want, but if you're hiding under the pews, you're not going to make it. And so this idea of the big one is like constantly, if you grew up here, it's on the back of your mind, like, if the big one comes, man, we're toast. And it ain't going to work to hide under your desk and hold on as hard as you can to the, to the legs of your desk. It's not going to work because you're toast. If the earthquake doesn't get you, if you don't fall into a hole in the earth, if nothing collapses on top of you, well, then the tsunami's going to get you, and you're going to drown. <laughs> Just telling you. Stop, drop, and roll, okay? <laughs> it's uplifting. I told you, this is a great sermon. Okay. Your gri- I don't care how strong your grip is. Your desk's not going to help you, man. So what happens when the biggest of shakes comes. Well, Hebrews tells us what happens and what we're to do. Amazing. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 10, and we're going to actually start in verse 18 and read to 29. It says this, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet or a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Quote, if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned, stoned to death. Indeed, no terif- uh, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. I'll explain uh, what they're talking about there in a bit. Verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in feastal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Verse 25. See that you do not refuse Him who is speaking, 
For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? And at that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Whew. Now here, let me explain to you very quickly this first half of the passage. Basically what the author is doing is he's comparing two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Mount Sinai is the mountain in the Old Testament where God gave the law to Moses and the people of Israel. Mount Zion is a term that's used of uh, the new heaven and new earth, the heavenly Jerusalem, the new city of God. That's uh, the term that is used. And so we have this comparison between a mountain of fear, you hear the fear in the mountain of Sinai, and this mountain of joy, which is Mount Zion. Now, the difference between these two mountains also uh, relates to the difference in the old and the new covenant, which if you've been with us, we, we've been talking about this. Jesus ushers in the new covenant. The old covenant was ushered in by Moses at Mount Sinai. So that's what he's talking about here. And so this first mountain rightfully uh, depicts a mountain of terror because what was actually said is that the presence of God dwells on that mountain, and if anyone goes near it, they will surely die. Here's the quote you see about if an animal even goes and touches the mountain, they shall surely die. And so what you've got here is this picture of this mountain of God full of His glory and His holiness and His righteousness sort of present with the people but removed from the people. People could not come close to this mountain of God because to touch God in our sinful state meant death. That's the picture. And so when we transition now, and it says, but you, verse 22, have come to a different mountain, Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and here are all the angels and all the saints of old that have come together. This is really this idea of the heavenly body come together, the assembly. It's one of the reasons why we chose to name our church Sedaris, which means heavenly body. And so we too participate even now on earth in this heavenly body that's, that's assembling and worshiping God and will one day, we'll all come together. And this is a totally different kind of mountain and a different kind of city because what does it say? It's the city of the living God and we literally dwell in God's presence. There is no longer separation. We can come close to Him and touch Him and death will not be a part of that picture. Okay? See the difference here? And this is why it's so important to understand this difference. Then we could not have true proximity to God. We could not touch Him. He could not touch us for our unrighteousness and His righteousness could not commingle and it meant our death. But with the coming of Jesus, the better sacrifice, the better high priest, He died in our place 
And now the wrath of God has been poured out on all unrighteousness, on Jesus Christ on the cross. The veil has been torn, and that separation that was there for Israel is no longer there for the people of the new covenant. That's you and me. And so we can literally feel and have the touch of God and not experience death. Very important to understand that because of where we're going. So then we come into verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. We'll come back to this. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, talking about Israel here, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? Here's the idea. They got a warning from earth. They got like a mini earthquake. And in fact, if you go and you read about Mount Sinai and the giving of the law, it says that the earth quaked, a sign of God's power. But there is coming a different kind of earthquake because now God sends his message from heaven, which is his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth, that's what I just said, but now he has promised, yet once more I shall shake not only the earth, but also the heavens, meaning I will shake everything. Nothing will be untouched by this shake. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made. That is, everything that God has created will be shaken. That the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So, you've heard of these sayings, right? I sent out a video. Shake it off. <laughs> I'm so sorry about the thumbnail that pops up on the shake it off video. I don't know if you saw my email. It's a terrible thumbnail. If you looked at it on your phone, you don't see the th thumbnail, so you don't know what I'm talking about. It picks a particular part of the music video that I don't like that much. So we have these sayings like, shake it off, or we got to give them a shakedown, or I will not be shaken. Or we say things like, we have to wait and see how it all shakes out, right? So we have these ideas of things being shaken. It's part of our nomenclature. We like understand kind of what it means, right? But I want to give a little bit more understanding to what it's saying here. All of that that we're saying, even what Taylor Swift is saying, has some type of a connection here to what God is saying. There are all sorts of things in Taylor Swift's life that she doesn't like. Rumors that she doesn't like. People probably that she doesn't like and the things they say. And she says, you know what, I'm just going to shake it off. I'm just going to shake it off. They're not going to be my identity or my definition of myself. I'm shaking them off. And then I sent you this dog video, right? Did you know that dogs can shake off 70% of the water that's on them in four seconds? This is incredible stuff. So they get water on them or anything that they don't really want on them, and they shake. And in four seconds, they can get 70% of that off. And so shaking and shaking it off and shaking down and how is it going to shake out is really another way of saying, I want to remove anything that's not essential 
to what's good and true and right. I want to get rid of it, and the way I get rid of it is by shaking it. It's no different than what God's saying right here. And what we see is this shaking that he's talking about. It's not just a physical earthquake. It's a spiritual earthquake. Everything is being shaken down, shaken off by God. And once and for all, at the end of time, God will shake like He's never shaken before. And everything will be removed. Everything that is not unshakable will be removed. And this shaking, this removal of things that are not essential to God and His kingdom will be shaken off. It's frightful. Because His shaking is His judgment. And this is the part of the story that we don't like to talk about. The part of the story that we like to skim over. But God must judge His good and righteous creation because there are things that have clinged to it, that have attached themselves to it, that shouldn't be there. And so He's waited patiently, but He's coming to a day when He has to shake it off. All of it. One final time. In order to get it to where He wants it to be. So, um, if you're a single man in here, you probably do this because this is what I used to do uh, before I got married. But like, say I'm living in my apartment, right? And what I would do is I would allow clutter to sort of build up over the week, maybe two weeks, hard to know, maybe a month. I don't know, but I'd let it build up. I mean, I don't need to do all the dishes right after I've used them. I'll just create a nice stack. I'll sort of create a pile But eventually, even for a bachelor, there comes a time when there's too much filth, there's too much junk, and I've got to do what? Shake it off. (laughs) And literally, I will spend, and, and so my wife doesn't like to admit this, but when I clean, I deep clean. I mean, I'm, not, I'm just like, I'm not reorganizing things. I mean, I get down and dirty because I don't do it that often. So when I do it, I mean, I, I clean it all. I shake it all off. And I used to do this when I was a single guy, too. So you catch me on the right day, it looks like I'm a very clean gentleman. But I wasn't. Build it up, and then the day comes when I judge my apartment. I will, I will literally judge it. And I, what am I doing? I'm removing anything that's not essential to life that I no longer want to be a part of my life going forward because it's not not a part of who I want to be. So I judge it. I shake it off. This is what God's going to do with his creation, with his cosmic apartment. He's waiting and he's waiting. Why? Because he's doing other things. He's got things he needs to accomplish that can't happen after he judges, and he's focusing on those now, and he's allowing things to remain in his apartment that he doesn't like, that he knows smell, that he knows are bad, and there's coming a day when he'll shake one last time and judge it all completely, and it will be gone. It will be removed. And this was heavy on my heart. Now you say, like, that doesn't seem like a loving God. Judgment? I think we all deep down want God to judge our world because we know that there are things in this world that shouldn't be there. Children should not be molested. 
Women should not be raped. God, judge our world. Remove all those things that aren't a part of you. We feel it, don't we? I mean, in a very small way, I felt that this week. Last Saturday night, my car got broken into, and they stole the money out of my console, and they stole Grayson's snowsuit out of the trunk. A kid's snowsuit! What are you going to do with it? There's no way you can fit into that. Four days later, my wife's car got broken into, and they stole one thing, Grayson's diaper bag. What are you going to do with a diaper bag, man? You will not fit into those diapers. But I'm telling you, like this, even this small thing, and it's in some ways very trivial compared to so many other things that we could talk about. I felt violated, and I felt like, God, judge this world. Who does this? Why? What are you waiting for? Here we have God's promise. He will clean house one day. I actually prayed for those thieves that they would come to know Jesus and stop stealing diaper bags. I'm not joking about that. I think we feel that we, I think deep down we know that we need a shakedown. There's things that just need to be shaken off. You know, we probably say things like, have you ever said like, I just can't shake this cold? Maybe you've said things like, I just can't shake this cancer. Maybe you've said things like, I just can't shake this addiction. I just can't shake this depression. I just can't shake this destructive habit. Well, know this, there's coming a day when there's somebody greater than you that will shake you down and shake those things away that you don't feel like you can shake. There's coming a day when the Lord God, the Creator, the Redeemer, will literally shake everything that is contrary to His nature off of everything else, including His children. That's me and you. There'll be no more weeping, shaken off. There'll be no more hurt or pain, shaken off. There'll be no more suffering, shaken off. No more darkness, shaken off. No more sick or lame, all of it shaken off of God's good creation. We'll no longer be slaves to sin. He'll shake that off too. Sin will be gone when the Lord shakes that final time. And we'll be made free. No longer oppressed by our sinful ways. Our sinful nature will literally be shaken off of us. Oh God, that day will be so good. For a time, He's allowed His creation to cohabitate with another kingdom, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of His enemies. He's allowed darkness to cohabitate with life, death to cohabitate with... Sorry, darkness to cohabitate with light, and death to cohabitate with life, sin to cohabitate with righteousness. But there's coming a day when cohabitation is no longer a part of God's plan. His kingdom, his unshakable kingdom, will be removed from the shakable kingdom. And God is literally healing his planet, his people. His shaking is his healing. I hope you hear that. 
That's why at the end of this uh, chapter, he says, For our God is a consuming fire, that nothing that is shakable will remain. It will be consumed by the holy righteousness of God. And only those things that aren't shakable will make it through the fire of the Lord. It's a good, it's a beautiful truth. It's a scary truth. And here's the deal. You have to ask yourself this question. If this is true, and it is true, God has told us that it's true, that He's shaking one last time, He will shake. You have to ask, will my grip hold? If you're not asking this question right now, will my grip hold when He begins to shake? Start asking that question. Will your grip hold? And what makes you so sure? What makes you so sure? The story of my life and probably the story of your life would be the same, that we always tend to overestimate the power of our grip. I always tend to overestimate the power of my grip. And it probably started young because I see Grayson doing it. He's actually got a very strong grip for an eight-month-old. But you know what? It's not nearly as strong as he thinks it is. But you know, when he's holding on to something or he's holding on to my shirt and he thinks that it's him that's keeping him up, it's my grip that's really supporting him. Even though he thinks his grip is so amazing. In a tug-of-war... What's the first thing you do? You look across and you size up your, component, uh, your opponent. And you wonder, can they shake and pull harder than me? And if you think, no, they can't, then you go in with a lot of confidence, right? Now, picture this. Even if you're the strongest man alive and you're in some sort of reality TV show, tug of war, reality. And all of a sudden it says, your next competitor is the creator of the universe. And God walks out from behind the curtain and you look at him. What should be your response? Immediate urination. <laughs> okay. Because you realize when he starts shaking, I'm the best tug-of-war guy in the country, but when he starts shaking, there's no way I'll be able to hold on. It's a dramatic Moment when you realize that you're not going to be able to hold on. I don't care how strong your grip is. When God starts shaking, you're not going to be able to hold on. You say, well, I've got one of those grips. It's just so strong. I mean, I can make it through anything. It won't hold. You're toast. So where's the hope? Where's the hope? Here's the hope. John 10, 14 and following says this. Jesus says this. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay my life down for my sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also. 
and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. And it goes on a few verses later. Jesus says this, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Here's the hope. It's not your grip that will save you when the shaking comes. When the big one hits, it's not your personal grip. It's the grip of Jesus Christ holding on to you that will help you make it through the quake. Why? Because Jesus and the Father are one and no one snatches anyone from their hand. Here's why the touch I told you about was so important. In the New Covenant, God grabbing hold of us, Jesus grabbing hold of us, doesn't kill us anymore because Jesus has paid the price for our sin. So His touch doesn't kill us But it saves us. It doesn't kill us, but it saves us. Don't trust in your own grip. Trust in God's grip. I learned the truth of this in a profound way in 2007. Right after my sister Kim was killed suddenly in a bicycling accident. This song made its way into my ears. I'd never heard it before, and it became sort of an anthem for me. It's a song by a singer named Matt Kearney, and it's called All I Need. Here's here's what it says. The walls are shaking. I hear them sound the alarm. Glass is breaking, so don't let go of my arm. Grab your bags and a picture of where we went or where we met, all that we'll leave behind and all that's left. If everything we've got is blowing away, we've got a rock and a rock till our dying day. And here's the line that stuck with me I'm holding on to you, holding on to me. I'm holding on to you, holding on to me. Maybe it's all gone black, but you're all I see. You're all I see. For me, these lyrics carried me through the hardest time of my life. Oh, the weight of the sorrow and the grief. I literally had no grip. I mean, I couldn't even stand on my own, it felt like. And the only thing I had to hold on to was I knew that God was holding on to me. And I held on to that truth. It's the only grip I had. I'm holding on to you, God. Holding on to me. When the storm comes, it's all we've got. 
God holding on to us. The only grip strong enough to hold on when the big one comes is the grip of the one who's shaking. And I realized in that season of life, and I've continued to realize the truth of those words, that actually, when I let go of my own grip is when I have a new kind of strength and a new kind of power. Like Grayson, I think that it's my grip that's carrying me through, but it's actually the Father's greater grip And if I just let go, I can go places that I never thought I could. I realized this the first time I ever went uh, rock climbing. I was in the eighth grade. And the whole time, I was, you know, trying so hard not to lose my grip. Not to lose my grip. And I barely got anywhere. I was terrible at it. And I'm still not, I'm not a rock climber, okay? I'm not built for it. Heavy upper body. No, it's not good. Okay. But what I realized, like 30 minutes into it, is that there was this bearded dude below me who was holding me up. And I could just like do anything I wanted. I could try, I could take risks that I never thought possible because this bearded guy was holding me up. Now don't hear me, I don't know if God's this bearded guy in the sky, okay? I'm not saying that, but most rock climbers have beards. But the thing I realized is that these risks that I could take, and actually then I realized that it was actually a lot more fun just hanging on the rope than it was trying to climb. Let's let him do all the work. And so then I'm defying gravity and I'm swinging from here and I'm swinging over here. I was one of those punk eighth graders, you know. And I'm like, I'm not even trying to be a good rock climber. I'm just trying to have fun. And so I think we do this in our life like we cling so hard hoping that our grip can get us to this place in life when if we just let go and realize that his grip is so much stronger, we could go places that we never thought we could go. And if we just sort of humble ourselves and realize that we don't have to win at the game that the world has told us to win by, which is, it doesn't count unless you got it on your own. If we just give that up and realize, who told us that that's true? God defines victory. God defines success. It's God's kingdom. It's His city. He tells us how to get there. And what He says is, let go. And I realized in my moment where I couldn't grip how true that was. And I started holding on to him, holding on to me. I no longer fear losing my grip. I no longer fear losing my grip. Because his grip holds me up. Here's what I hope you hear today. Look at verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. This is God. And through chapter 1 through 11, he's been speaking to us about one person whose name is Jesus. And he says, do not refuse him who is seeking. Which is to say, do not refuse the hand of salvation that God has given you through Jesus. Do not refuse it. It's His gracious offer to be connected to you. His outstretched hand waiting for you to respond to Him and just grab it. 
And once you've grabbed it, nothing can shake you from it. If you're already a Christian, here's what I hope you take from tonight. Maybe you feel right now that you've got a pretty strong grip and you can accomplish a lot on your own. My hope is that you don't get caught up in thinking that doing it on your own is somehow better than allowing God to propel you to places that you don't even think you could go right now. That you learn voluntarily to let go of your own grip and to rest in the truth of His grip. I hope hope that it doesn't take something like losing your sister for you to realize that like it did for me. It's the grace of God's grip. Now, if you're a Christian and right now you feel like you have no grip at all, that your strength is gone, perhaps you're like I was after my sister died. And you feel like any minor shake is going to knock you off your feet. That the wind could blow and you'd fall over. Believe me, God is holding you up. And you might even now be able to do things you never thought you could do back when you thought your grip was strong. He's holding you. He won't let you fall. Hold on to Him holding on to you. Now, if you're not yet a Christian, here's what I hope you hear. Only the grip of God can hold you when judgment comes and He begins to shake this one last time. Jesus is God and He's reaching out and He's crying, take my hand, trust me. But you know, many of us refuse that. And we refuse it time and time again. You might even believe that His hand is the only thing that can save you, yet you refuse it. And as I thought about this week, why do we do this? And why do I even do it in my own life? And why do I keep thinking if I can just get my grip stronger, I can accomplish so much more? The reason we do is because for some reason we've convinced ourselves that His hold is going to be painful. It's going to be intrusive. It's going to suffocate us. And here's where my wife comes in. If you've ever shaken my wife's hand, you know that in this tiny little five-foot-two ball of joy and wonder comes the strongest grip you've ever seen. And she'll squeeze your hand. And if she gives you a hug, you better take a big breath. Because she'll squeeze it out of you. And you know what I learned from my wife? I have false expectations of what a strong grip feels like. Because when my wife shakes my hand, it's full of joy and comfort. Even though it's strong. If you're resisting the offer of God, if he's reached his hand and you haven't grabbed it because you're scared of what it's going to feel like when he takes hold of you, trust me, 
Your expectations are wrong. Nothing is more full of love and joy, far, far from dominating and suffocating. The grip of Jesus is more like the grip of Grayson. It's so soft and wonderful. Trust me, it will free you. It won't cause you pain. I want you to ask yourself tonight, what is keeping me from accepting the grip of God? It's the only thing that saves when the shaking starts. Let's pray. Father, oh Father, forgive us that we trust our own grip more than we trust yours. Forgive us that we don't reach out and accept your offer right away. Forgive us for waiting, but we're scared. We've heard all these things about who you are and what it will feel like and how restrictive it will be. Give us the courage to grab hold of you and then to trust that your hold is the only thing that can save. Father, I pray tonight that if there's anybody in the room who does not know you personally, that has not accepted your outstretched hand, that tonight they might do that. Tonight, for the first time, they might reach back and accept your gracious offer And that when they do, for eternity, they know that you'll never let go of them. No matter how hard the shaking gets, in the small and in the large, you will not let go of them. So if there's anybody in the room tonight, Lord, I just want to pray this prayer and and just invite them to pray it along with me. This is a prayer, it's not magical, it's just us recognizing who you are. So if you want to pray this, go ahead and just quietly in your own head and your own heart, just pray these words. Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to come and live the life that we should have lived but don't. Thank you that he willingly went to the cross and gave up his life and died a death in my place that my sin is on him, that I'm no longer unrighteous in your sight, and I no longer have to stay far from you, but now I can come close to you. I can even touch you. And we thank you that you didn't leave him in the ground, but you rose him from the grave three days later to prove that you're even greater than death, that Jesus was your son, God, I want to accept your hand today. I no longer want to try to do it on my own. I want to trust in you holding on to me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.